Our sermon passage this morning is from Exodus chapter 20. If you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, that can be found on page 61, Exodus 20. This morning, we look at the first three verses, Exodus chapter 20. Look there with me. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Listen to this quote. Here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep your fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. These are the words not of a professing Christian, but of David Foster Wallace in a 2005 commencement address at Kenyon College. Although he's not a Christian, was not a Christian, he certainly struck on some biblical truth in this address. His words even echo those of John Calvin, that the the human heart is like a factory manufacturing idols for itself things to worship. In Foster's words, in real human life, there's no such thing as not worshiping. You, a a person here alive this morning, you worship. You are ruled by something. Your life finds its orbit around something. You're, the, you're, you're under the unrelenting authority of a God, even if that God is your own self. Your relentless personal desires. To be a person is to need a God. Your heart will insist on that. So the question for each person, the question for each worshiper is very simply this. Is there a God who is actually worthy of your whole life's devotion? 
Is there a God to whom wholehearted devotion will not, as he said, eat us alive? Well, this morning in Exodus 20, as we step into the first of Ten Commandments, I get to offer you some very good news when it comes to this most foundational question. So we're only going to look at three verses this morning, and I want to take them one at a time with each, with just kind of one main point for each verse. And the first is this. We can know who is actually God. We can know who is actually God. Look at verse 1, because here we have some of the most comforting words that I can offer you. Look at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. Did you catch it? God spoke all these words. In Exodus 20, we have a God speaking. The one true God has not been silent. He has made himself known, and he's made himself known in plain language. You see it right there. God spoke words. So listen, we have many questions about God, but one thing is unquestioned, and that is that the God of the Bible is a God who makes himself known. He, the one true God, is a God who desires to be known. You know, it's easy for us to lose our wonder at the fact that God has revealed himself to us, isn't it? It's so, it's so easy to cease to be amazed at the fact that God in heaven has spoken to us here on earth, right? So how easy is it to wake up on any given day, any given Tuesday, right? You hurry through breakfast, you walk outside into the car, into the utter miracle of a new day. You're kind of imprisoned in the cell of your own mind, of your own anxiety, without one ear tuned to the reality that the heavens themselves are declaring the glory of God. Or how easy is it for us to come here on a Sunday morning, Right? We rush here. We barely made it to the building with a full set of clothes on. Right, Someone stands at the front and instructs us to open the Bible, and we do. Right, And the words are projected up on the screen, and we hear a few verses, and, but then we think about lunch right, or work or that strained relationship, and we miss the word. And you know, part of this is just, it's just living in a fallen world and a fallen body, right? But the truth remains that whether we're awed by it or not, the one true God has revealed himself to us. He's not, he's not hiding. The sky, the stars, the birds, the land, the oceans, everything in them, the Bible, we have the Bible, the very word of God. My Bible here, right here, the Bible under the chair in front of me has 1,100 pages, right? 66 books, all kinds of genres, the law, the prophets, the writings, the psalms, the wisdom, the gospel, the epistles, literally ends with, a, ends with a book called The Revelation. And why? For what purpose? For the purpose that in a world full of countless so-called gods, we can know the one who is actually God. So listen, if we don't know who the one true God is, if we're living in service to something or someone else, the reason is not because the one true God has hidden himself from us. The one true God has spoken from heaven so that we might be confident in our conviction that he and he alone is the one true God. 
which means that if we're going to worship the one true God, then we've got, we've got to know who he is. And if we're going to know who he is, we've got to listen. So I wonder, is your, is your ear tuned to God's word, to hear God's word? Are you paying attention to God's revelation in your life? What's louder than God's word in your life? What other stations, so to speak, are you tuned to other than God's word? What would it look like for you to tune in to God's word? Maybe the first step for you is to have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, take that blue Bible in front of you. Take it home. If you have a Bible and it's difficult for you to understand, get a study Bible. Come on Sunday morning. Come next week at 9 o'clock. We'll start studying the book of Romans together. We'll just walk through it verse by verse. We'll tune our ears to God's revelation to us. That's the plan. God has spoken, which means here's the point. We really can know the one who is actually God and the many who are not. So we can know this. And this brings us to a second point. Only the Lord is actually God. All right, so we can know who is actually God. Number two, only the Lord is actually God. Look there in verse two. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So in Exodus 20, the one true God speaks up. And what does he say? This is where he starts the Ten Commandments, right? No, look at verse 2. That's verse 3, right? Verse 2 comes before verse 3. And what does verse 2 say there? He says, he speaks up and he says, I am this. Again, I think this is so easy to miss, but we can't overlook it, right? So before the Lord tells Israel who they are meant to be, he reminds them who he is. You see that? And who is he? Verse 2. I am the Lord your God. Which God is the one true God? It's the one whose name is the Lord. So this is not new information to us, right? But it's certainly worthy of review. So even in the book of Exodus, we've already been through this identification exercise before. Think back to Exodus chapter 3, when the same God first revealed himself to Moses. You remember that? So God calls out to Moses. He tells them that he's going back to Egypt, to the people of Israel, in order to free them from slavery. And Moses asks him very directly, he says, okay, well, say I, say I do this. When I come to your people, and they look at me, claiming to hear from God, and they say, they say, well, what's his name? What do I tell them? And what's the Lord's answer? Do you remember? Exodus three fourteen. Here's what you tell them. I am who I am. I am because I am. I am that which I am. Who is the one true God? He, he's the Lord. He, he's, the, he's the one who simply is, right? We, we talked about this in Exodus 3. We called this the isness of God. The one true God, he never began. He has always been. He, he will never not be. The one true God is who he is. He's so unique that the Hebrew language just turns a verb into a proper noun to identify him, right? Just four letters. And this is how he becomes known among his people. He is Yahweh, the Lord, translated with all caps in your Bible. See, when you, when you see your Bible, translating that L-O-R-D, all caps, that's, that's Yahweh right there. Because he and he alone is the 
Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. And he's proven this all throughout the rest of the Bible. Who was the one who created all things? It was the Lord. Who was the one who ruled the waters when, when we saw in the flood? That was also the Lord. Who was the one who scattered the people at Babel who tried to make a name for themselves? That was the Lord. Who was the one who chose Abraham, who spared Isaac, the one who sustained Jacob's line, right? Through all the sin and lying and murderous threats, brought Joseph to Egypt in order to save up for the famine, for the salvation of many in Israel. Who, who was that? That was the Lord. It's the one who promised to bring Israel out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. That was the Lord. The one who made good on the promise, who actually did bring Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of that wicked house of slavery. Remember, that's what we looked at last week. He, the Lord himself compared himself to an eagle that swoops down into the midst of the trouble, brings his people out on his own wings, out of trouble, into safety to himself. The point being, that was the Lord. And this is exactly what the Lord reminds his people of here in chapter 20, before he gets in the Ten Commandments. You see that? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord, maybe this brings it into focus, right? The, the verses we read earlier. The Lord is one. Just one Lord. The God of all creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who brings his people out of slavery, who rescues them so that he might have a relationship with them. That's one one true God. We all worship something. We are all ruled by, we're, un, we're all under the dominion of some type of God. Atheism is a farce. And what the Bible is saying over and over again is that here's the one who's actually God. Which means here is the one who unlike Everything else, whatever else it is you're living for, here is one who's actually worthy of your life, right here. This God, the God of the Bible, is distinct. He is set apart. He is different. There is no one like the God you find in the Bible. So you can go ahead and search. You will find no one like this God, which means that God is distinctly worthy of our worship, of our devotion. The Lord is distinctly worthy. He is uniquely admirable. He is exclusively venerable. He is singularly esteemed. Which means that the first commandment should be no surprise at all. So, so, when, so when the Bible says, look at, look at who God is, right? This is the Lord. This is what he's done. This is who he is. This, is. this is the reason he's working. When this God then condescends and says, you shall have no other God before me, the response is not, whoa, 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 wait, hold on, hold on. You said, you should, no other gods, are you sure? No. Listen, the first commandment, when seen in light of who the Lord actually is, it is the most logical loving instruction we could ever receive. Because listen, the first commandment is at the same time, it reserves all worship for the one who is actually worthy of it, right? The one true God. And in the second place, 
It protects us from all kinds of idols, things that we'd be tempted to see and view and live with as God, the things that, as Wallace says, will eat us alive if we live with them as our gods. So all those things, right? Money, power, position, sex, comfort, a spouse, family. The point is that good things, good gifts from God make terrible gods. They cannot sustain our devotion They will eat us alive. And the first commandment protects us from that trap, from exalting good gifts to the place of the giver. The Lord is the one true God. What the Bible is saying, what the first commandment is saying, is that to give your life to anyone else other than God is folly. To worship anyone else is idolatry. To serve To serve anyone else, give your life to anyone else or anything else, it's misery. To expect a word, a divine word from anyone else, it's futility. Listen, because because God has spoken to us, we can know who is actually God. And the only one in all the universe who is actually God is the Lord. It's Yahweh, the one who is. This is God. And listen, if the, if the wonders, if the sermon ended there, it's not, it's not ending there. But if it did, if it did end there, listen, this is amazing news, right? What's more amazing is that I have better news to give to you. <laughs> because we can't miss the fact that this same God is the God who showed up. He showed up incarnate on this very earth. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. He he took on flesh, the Bible says, and dwelt physically among us. People hated him and people tried to corner him. And when they asked him reproachfully just who he thought he was, they looked at him. They said, are you greater than our father Abraham? Jesus told them the truth. Remember what he said? Before Abraham was, I am. The people people picked up stones to throw at him, right? Because they knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus is the very incarnation of the Lord. The I am, the one true God who alone is worthy of worship. Church, we don't have to wonder who is the one true God. He has revealed himself to us as Lord. And in these last days, the New Testament says, he has revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love when the apostles just get on a roll about this? Listen to Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, he, that is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he, still talking about Jesus, he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus Christ has revealed the one true God to us. 
And just as he did for Israel, so he has rescued us out of the house of slavery. The Lord Jesus, through his life, through his atoning death, through his victorious resurrection, he has rescued us out of the house of slavery to sin and Satan. That's what the rest of the New Testament says. Church, this is the one true God. The God of Israel and the God of the church, the God who is, the God who was, the God who is to come, who in Christ has entered into his people's plight, not to give them punishment, but to take their punishment upon himself so that they might be freely and rightfully his, right? We've talked about this. His whole aim here is to exalt his holy name by creating a kingdom of priests, a holy people who live distinct lives unto him because he is holy and they've seen it. Calling people out of all the nations to come to him in Christ. Out of all the various options, all the millions of options of different so-called gods to worship, he has called us out to worship the one true God in Christ. Paul sums it up again. Listen to 1 Corinthians 8. He says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Church, who is like God? Who is like our God? Let me ask you, what would you say to someone who was giving their life to serve a different God than this one? It's foolish, right? That's what you would say. Again, you can go looking for another God. Maybe you've spent your life looking for another God, something worthy of your life's devotion. Go search for it if you want to. Search out Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Taoism, Confucianism, Calvinism. I don't know what these are. Christian science, Rastafarianism, Sikhism. Go and look for another God. But I'll tell you, the reality is that this God, Jesus Christ, is the only one who has come looking for you. That's the difference in the one true God. You don't go looking for him. He came looking for you. You won't find that anywhere. Only in Christ. The message of the first commandment is there is one God who is distinctly worthy of being God over you. And he does not order you into obedience to him. He does not force you down into the ground to subject you. He wins you. He wins you through love. He has come himself. He himself has come to us. Now, what follows from this then? What follows is the Ten Commandments. Ten instructions, ten words. Maybe you've heard it called the Decalogue, right? That's just, it's just a fancy way of saying ten words. Ten words of instruction from a father to his children. And what I want us to see is that these Ten Commandments tell us one thing very basically. This is number three. Is that we should live as if the one true God is actually God. That's the conclusion. We should live as if the one true God is actually God. The first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. 
the first commandment is that we should not live as if anything other than God is our God. So we, we cannot have any other Lord. Uh, we cannot have any, anything else ruling over us. We have no other ultimate sovereign, no other ultimate master. So there's nothing in all the world that should have final say in what we say and what we do and what we believe and how we live. So whoever or whatever holds that place in your life, that's functionally your God. And the Bible's trying to wake you up from that to say there is only one person worthy of being in that position over you. And that place is reserved for the one true God, Yahweh, who has made himself known in Christ. And again, it strikes me in light of everything we've just seen, this first of the Ten Commandments is the most unsurprising command that we could imagine. So again, when seen in light of who the Lord is and what he's actually done for us, the surprising thing about this command is that it needs to be said at all. But the Lord does make it explicit for us, doesn't he? I am the Lord your God. Don't have any other gods before me. And the fact that the Lord does make it explicit, along with these other nine foundational commandments, I think it teaches us something, some things about the purpose of these commandments. And that's what I want us to think about with the rest of our time. I want us to look at this first commandment, and through it, I want to get, us, I want to get a sense of the purpose of all these commandments that we're going to be spending some weeks on. So what role do these ten words play in our lives? Why do we have them? What are they supposed to do for us? I just want to give you three things. This is under point three. I know it's confusing. Point three, three things. It's going to get more complicated in a minute, but for now, just hold this. Three things. The Ten Commandments, these rules, they're meant to distinguish us. They're given to distinguish us, God's people. I remember a story of a high school football team that was traveling to an away game. It was particularly hostile environment because the rivalry was so bitter. So these two teams had had friction in the past. So being wise, the, the visiting coach who was taking his team into hostile territory, he knew that, that this situation called for some new rules if his players were going to stay safe during that time. So when they get there, before they get off the bus to head through this hostile crowd into the stadium, the coach told them, he says, listen, I don't care. I don't care what anyone else does. If you're on my team, this is what you do. You put on your jersey, you step off the bus, you put your hands in your pockets, you look straight ahead, you keep your mouth shut, and you walk in a straight line to the locker room. After the game, you do the same exact thing right back here to the bus. Now think about it, what, what did it mean for the team to have those excessive rules for that circumstance? Did it mean the coach was, was this coach being overbearing? Was he obsessed with his authority, his power over these people? Or did these rules, did it mean that the coach actually, that they actually cared for these players very much? And that actually what he wanted to do was everything within his power to protect them and that having these rules actually meant that, actually meant that his players belonged to him and that they were actually in his care. I think it's similar with the law of God. The law is given 
by an engaged, caring father for the purpose of distinguishing and protecting those who actually belong to him. Having no other gods besides God is not to be arrogant. It's to be sane. It's to be safe. And notice also, what what was the purpose of these new regulations that were outlining uh, the way that this team was to behave by this coach? Were Were these ways to become part of the program? Were these ways to get on the team? Having these rules... It was evidence that you were on the team, right? It's the same with the law of God. Notice, what is the state of God's people in Exodus chapter 20? Are they, are they slaves or free? They're free. Are they alone or betrothed? They're betrothed, right? As if a bride to a groom. Are they orphans or are they being parented? Of course, they're being parented. Are they endangered or are they cared for? They're being so lovingly cared for. So listen, these commandments, they're not given to Israel, instructing them on how to become God's people. They're given as instructions on how to live as those who are already God's people. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says, the Ten Commandments are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. They are rules for a free people to stay free. Possessing the law of God, it reminded God's people that they were, in fact, God's people. They are a marker of belonging. A distinct God calls for a distinct purpose. This is one purpose of the law. It doesn't make sense any other way, does it? I think this leads to a second purpose of these commands. These commands are meant to instruct us. So they distinguish us and they instruct us. You know, it's not uncommon for people to read the Bible, uh, to read things like the Ten Commandments, and get really offended or annoyed, to get frustrated, because their perception is that Christianity is nothing more than than these oppressive rules, right? It's just thou shalt not, over and over and over again. And actually, I think we should be sympathetic to that in some ways, because it's not actually the heart of what we're doing here, is it? But think about this. What is, the, what is the alternative to having clear, substantive instruction on how to live? What's the alternative? Well, the alternative, as far as I can see, is that you're left figuring it out on your own. And I think that's, that's a lot of what we're seeing in our culture even today, right? And this is why my heart breaks for people who've been told that they have to step off the sure foundation for life and faith, but they're given nothing to step onto. And what do they find when they step off? It's a free fall. Everyone's searching. Everybody's, Everybody's grabbing for something solid, something true. And in that light, can't you see the goodness of having some divinely given guardrails to life? Think about what it means that we have all this instruction for the Lord, from the Lord. It means, it means that God has actually revealed to us that there is a good, right, holy way to live in a fallen world. I don't know about you, but we're not too good at figuring that out on our own, right? It's like an experiment we're doing right now. We're not good at finding out the holy way to live on our own. And into this mass chaos... The Lord so graciously, mercifully, has spoken words of instruction to us. 
like a caring father. He, he, he looks out at us, right? Going after all these other gods, right? Hooking up with everybody else, lying our way through situations, rebelling against our parents, on and on and on. And he says so kindly, so patiently, he says, no, 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 no. That's not the way. Let, let me show you. Let me show you the way. I'll do that. C.S. Lewis, even his day, he's, he he knew this was going on in the culture, and he spoke into it this way. He says, he says, the good news of the law is like the good news of arriving on solid ground after a shortcut gone awry through mud, muck, and mire. After fumbling about in the squishy, stinky mess, you're relieved to finally hit something solid, something you can trust, something you can count on. You see, being without instruction, without law, without authority, that is not the freest way to be. That's only to be enslaved to the worst God of all, which is yourself. Having the law of God, having the instruction of God, this is the freest way of life there is. Having been bought and rescued and brought out to himself, the Ten Commandments teach us how to live in the reality that the one true God is our God. You get to live with the one true God as your God. And he's going to tell you how. <laughs> Isn't that great? You don't have to figure it out. He's going to tell you. And what's the first thing he needs you to know? What's the first step in living in our newfound freedom? You cannot have any other God besides the one true God. That's the first thing. The first word of instruction is the fountain, it's the foundation of all the rest of them. We are to relate to God as if he is the only God there is because he is the only God there is. We are to have no other gods before him. That is literally according to the text, before his face, in his presence. Anything else you worship, you submit to, that is in the presence of God. You can't do it. You can't do it. Our relationship with the Lord our God, it is exclusive It is limited. It is monogamous. It is undivided. And again, this, it can feel offensive. It can sound offensive, I think, to people. But if we think about it in other contexts, it's kind of easy to see, isn't it? So Kevin DeYoung gives this, kind of helpfully imagines, taking this mindset of, of like God being a little bit too restrictive, that we should have a little bit more freedom to bring other gods, other things that we'd like to worship into this relationship. He likens this to if we were to bring it into marriage. He says, marriage is a good analogy for the first commandment. You cannot have a both-and relationship with your spouse, at least not for very long. Suppose a husband came home and said, honey, it's good to see you. I want to introduce you to someone who's very special to me. Don't get me wrong. You're also very special to me, but I've met someone else. She's lovely, and I'm going to spend some time with her, but also a lot of time with you. I just, want you to, I just want you to know that some nights I'm going to be with her instead. I think you two are going to get along great. You'll be great friends. You both mean so much to me. He says, well, what should a wife say in that situation? That's great, dear. I'm honored that I can still be a part of your life. Hardly. The wife would say, it's me or her. Make up your mind. And if the wife were to say this with a great deal of passion, would anyone think she was being cruel, proud, unfair, or intolerant? No, we would say that she's being just the sort of wife she ought to be. She has every right to be jealous. We'd be concerned if she wasn't angry. 
Some relationships are meant to be either or, not both and. Marriage is a relationship that demands forsaking all others. And so it is with God. When you're rescued by this one true God, you forsake all others. This is the clear instruction from heaven. Every person must serve the one true God and no one else. The first and foundational of the Ten Commandments teaching us how to live is the command that we must not have anything ruling over us that has not proven its distinct worth and worthiness to do so, okay? Something must prove its worth and worthiness to be God over you. And this leads to one final function, I think, of the Ten Commandments, and that is, number three, they're meant to expose us. We have these commands to expose us. Again, think about this. If God is so good, if God is so worthy and so wonderful, if he's so enjoyable, then why would he have to tell us? Why would he have to command us not to leave him? You shall have no other gods before me. The very existence of this command is revelatory, isn't it? Not just for who God is, but for who we are. And what it tells us, what it reveals about us, is that until we are glorified, until we have hearts that are completely done with sin, we need instruction because we will be tempted to serve other gods before God. So the question, when it comes to kind of application to your life when it comes to this commandment. The question is not whether or not you're being tempted out from under God's safe authority to look for other gods to serve. The question is in what way are you tempted to serve other gods? And this, I think, is where we have great opportunity, every single one of us, to let this command expose our hearts because that's what it's meant to do. How do we do this? Another way to ask this, how do we identify our idols or even our potential idols? And I'll just give you a few categories. If you want to jot these down, this will be good things to think through this week. Five things. I told you it's going to get a little more complica complicated, but all right. Three, three, five. Here are five. <clears throat> how do we identify, how do I, this isn't it yet. How do we identify the things that we're going to be tempted to go after other than the one true God. Number one, think about your affections. Think about your affections. The question to ask yourself is what do you love? What do you love? A way to dig deeper is to ask what do you find yourself sacrificing other things in order to get? Ask yourself, is there anything for which you're actually sacrificing the Lord himself? Is there anything that you know the Lord has put off limits, but you go get it anyway? The first commandment for our good says that we cannot have that other God in God's presence. Think about your affections. Second thing, think about your if-onlys. Think about your if-onlys. 
In other words, what do you assume would make you finally content in this world? So if only I could have fill in the blank, that job, that salary, that spouse, that home, that retirement, that stage of life. So if you think your contentment, your heart contentment rests in something outside of the Lord, that's an idol. And it's not good for you to have it. Number three, think about your non-negotiables. Think about your non-negotiables. That is, what are you unwilling to give up? Is there anything in your life that's off limits to the Lord? You know, the, the fact is, sacrificing a certain thing might be easy for some of us and hard for another, right? We don't all have the same idols. So what's it for you? What is off limits to the Lord? Your money, your time, your sexuality, what is it? You know, sometimes we don't even recognize our non-negotiables until they're negotiated, right? Until they're threatened. So what is it for you, right? So what is it? As long as it's in good shape, you're good. But as soon as that thing gets, gets out of shape or out of your hands, that you're a mess, right? Maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a political party. Maybe it's your health. You know, the, this is the irony of idolatry. The irony is that we feel like we cannot live without our idols. And the reality is that according to this command, you must not live without your idols, <laughs> You must not live with that very thing you feel like you can't live without other than God. Four, think about your dependence. Think about your dependence. In what or in whom do you trust? What do you turn to when things go wrong? What is your security? What do you count on for things to be okay in the world? Again, it can be a whole host of things. Finances, reputation, status, whatever it is. Think about your dependence. And finally, think about your devotion. What or whom do you serve? What is actually Lord over your life? One way to get at this is to ask, what, what orders your days? What sets the priorities of your hours? What orders your calendar? What directs your money? What directs how you spend your weekends? Is there anything in your life, in order to obey it, you must disobey Christ? Are you enslaved to, are you obedient to something which, when it comes down to it, usurps the submission, your submission to Christ. That's idolatry. And you cannot have that and also serve the one true God. You have to forsake them. These commandments, they will expose us. This is what we have to look forward to. I don't know if that's a good thing in your eyes. That's what we have to look forward to for the next nine weeks. And we must let them expose us because it's only in being exposed that we'll finally flee to Christ for salvation. This is so important. Have you, guys, have you ever seen one of those, those close-up makeup mirrors? Seen one of those? So they're, uh, they're like magnified, they're illuminated. They're terrifying. 
So I've looked into, I've looked into one of those one time in my life. I literally jumped backwards. I was so alarmed at what I saw. I saw things growing on my face that I, I don't know what, I couldn't tell you what they are. That, in a very real way, this is what it's like for a sinful person to look into the perfect law of God. The law is this magnified, illuminated mirror, and it, it doesn't miss anything. It sees, and it points out, and get this, it condemns every time. So, in a, in a very real way, the law, what we're going to be going through in a very real way, its whole purpose is to reveal the need for washing, okay? Now, here's what you don't do with one of those mirrors, right? You don't look into it. You don't see your need to get clean and take the mirror off the wall and start scrubbing your face with it, right? No, the mirror is there for one purpose. It's to show your need for something different, something better, namely water. Again, so it is with the law. And with each of these commands, they are here to show us the need for something altogether different from what they offer. The purpose of the mirror, one pastor says, is to drive you to the water. The purpose of the law, Christian, at the end of the day, is to drive you to the cross. Because it's only at the cross that you can be washed. You have sin. You must be washed. That's what the law is pointing out. And it's only at the cross that the perfect atoning blood of Christ was poured out. And it's at the cross that we truly obey the first commandment. Because it's only at the cross that we confess that we have no other hope, no other way of saving ourselves, other than the one true God as he's been made known in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't even trust ourselves, not even our own righteousness. And that's what we confess when we, can, when we come to the cross. Every single one of us worships something. I said, why wouldn't it be Jesus Christ? Why wouldn't you worship Jesus Christ? What do you, what do you have that's better? And this is exactly what we remember and celebrate when we come together toward, to the Lord's Supper every week. The truth of the gospel is that the one true God has invited sinners to come to him by faith, to acknowledge that Christ and no one else is God over us. So we come to do now. Let's pray. We'll continue on together. Father, we, we do pray and praise you for the good news of the gospel. We even thank you for this indiscriminate mirror of the law that looks at every single imperfection in us. And we flee from those things today. We want to flee from those things and come only to Christ. We worship you. We thank you for the good news of the cross, that the one true God has come to us. So now, Lord, we come to you by faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.